not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Today, I am joined by Calvin Falwell, who is the third slash bass slash utility clarinet of the Sarasota Orchestra. Uh, Calvin is somebody I met when I played in the Ashlawn uh, Opera Orchestra. Now it is the Charlottesville Opera. And um, he and I have become pretty good friends, and um, I've gotten to know him a little bit, and I know that he is um, hes very much a go-getter, and um, he's talked to me about some of the opportunities he's been able to create um, just by being willing to sort of put himself forward, and I thought it'd be great to talk to him uh, to get some of his life story, but also to get some of that advice in case there's anybody out there who's just starting out in their career or early on in their career who thinks that might be kind of interesting stuff to know. Um, and then also I know he's done well in auditions and things like that. And he's played with some big orchestras, so we'll probably be able to touch on some of that as well. So thank you very much, Calvin, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is a real honor, and I'm really excited to kind of talk about my story and, you know, give any advice to people that might find my story useful in any way. Yeah, so why don't we start with... Um, the very, very beginning, um, where you were born, where you grew up. Sometimes that's different for people from where they were born and, um, just kind of your early life and how you may have gotten into music. Okay. So <clears throat> I was born in Murray, Kentucky. And, um, I'm, I like to say that I'm the product of two visual artists. Um, my father is a sculptor and, uh, focused on a area of sculpture called functional design. So that's basically like furniture design. Um, and my mother start, uh, studied art education. And um, so it was a really cool environment to grow up in. And I have two older brothers who are also um, very creative as well. And, you know, it was kind of an interesting place to grow up in. Murray was a college town. And, um, my dad taught at the university years ago, but while I was growing up, my father was primarily just an independent, independent artist. And, um, you know, I got into music as my parents were into music. And I remember kind of some of my early musical experiences were just digging through my parents' record collection and listening to uh, some great recordings that they had. And, um, Do you remember any of them in particular? Uh, yes. It was Chicago Symphony playing uh, Tchaikovsky's March Slav. That was my first, like, really interesting, like, wow. This... Is that with Reiner recording? Yes. Uh, I, I know that exact one. I've listened to that. I wore that out in high school. That's very cool. I mean, so it was a really interesting recording. And then um, listening to early blues recordings that my dad had, like uh, uh, the um, Mississippi John Hurt, uh, Papa John Creech. And that, you know, it was a really cool intro into, you know, blues music and, you know, not just blues music, but how that grew into rock and roll. And my mom 
I listened to her 45 collection uh, at my grandparents' house quite a bit. And that was 45 records of um, the Beatles, uh, the Mamas and the Papas, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, and the Supremes, the Four Tops. When you say records, you're talking actual vinyl Actual records. vinyl, nice. vinyl nice. records. And uh, listened to a lot of cassette tapes as well. Um, and, you know, from that, I... My brother, who's 10 years older than me, my brother Matthew, was really into punk rock in the late 80s and early 90s. And that also influenced me as well, listening to what he was listening to. Um, so early on, my first influences with music were just the recordings that my parents had. And which was really kind of cool. I remember... Um, digging into their record collection and listening to Led Zeppelin and hearing that for the first time. And I just was like amazed. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah. And listening to Jimi Hendrix and being like, Oh my God, I didn't realize <laughs> sounds like this could come out sure. of the electric guitar. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's how I got into my, my interest in music, but then, you know, actually playing music and being a musician you know, I watched my brother in band, uh, my older brother, Matthew, and he played percussion. And when it came time to, for me, to kind of think about music in elementary school, um, I was always interested in uh, elementary music class and everything from like the step xylophone to like shakers and stuff. I was totally into it. And my uh, elementary school had a fourth and fifth grade choir. So I participated in uh, the fourth and fifth grade choir. And that was pretty cool. I, I really enjoyed it. I completely admit that I was not the best singer sure. in the world. Um, but it was an <laughs> intro. And yeah. then in our fifth grade year, the um, band director from the middle school and the high school would come over and would bring some middle school students and they would demonstrate some instruments and they were middle schoolers. Yeah. Middle schoolers. They, <laughs> they would demonstrate instruments for nice, the elementary school nice. kids. And I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And you know, I thought, well, my brother was in band. He was a percussionist. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be a percussionist. And my mom was like, no, no, you're not going to be a percussionist. Your father was in marching band. He did percussion. No, your your brother. No, it's too loud. Which I, I honestly, I feel like that's the case with most parents. When sure, they hear their kid I wants think DeMondre to... mentioned that in his interview exactly. too. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard that and I was like, oh, I went through that same experience. Yeah. So my mom was like, okay, why don't you try another instrument? You know, why don't you try saxophone? You know, I really like Kenny G. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, what a reason. Yeah. yeah. So I go in and I remember our my sixth grade year, uh, my band director was Gary Mullins. Great guy. Uh, very supportive. And he, you know, was demonstrating the instruments. And so we got to pick out some instruments. And I'm like trying to play the saxophone. I'm like, yeah, this is okay. And then I heard this like really rich sound from across the room it's probably it was, a trumpet right no no actually <laughs> it, was, it was a clarinet <laughs> and um, i don't think any what fifth sixth grader right was i don't think there's anything rich coming from a sixth grade trumpet player you <laughs> probably <know? laughs> not probably not um and i was just like wow that's a really cool sound yeah and it was like really chocolatey and dark and i was like okay that's sweet i'm i'm gonna do clarinet so Sixth grade year happened. I was playing clarinet in the band and I was like, okay, 
this is cool and all, but then there was this kid who was a little bit older than me. His name was Bryce Miller, and we became pretty good friends, and he was kind of like a peer slash musical mentor of mine, even though he was like a year older than me. Um, we had a really good relationship and I met him actually through forensic team, speech team, theater, and he played bass clarinet. Mm. Boy, when I heard him play bass clarinet, I was like, this is for me. Yeah. Like, like this is better than sliced bread. It's like, I I want to, I want to play this, like screw the clarinet. (laughs) I want to play bass clarinet. Interesting. So I switched to bass clarinet really, really early on. So, which is that common for kids to do? No, yeah. usually, like kids get into bass clarinet like late. Typically, like the high school band director will honestly put the worst kids on the auxiliary instruments. Yeah, which is a bone I have to pick with music educators. I think you should put the really good kids on the auxiliary instruments because it's a color instrument. And you want a good player to sure. to, to produce that sound. So most of my colleagues that are auxiliary players, they got into it in college and in and grad then, school. I guess part of the question I have, too, is um, I know now, right, mm-hmm. you're a bass clarinet. That's like your instrument, right? I know you play, can play clarinet and probably mm-hmm. all the other instruments as well. But I know through being with Kathleen that they are specialty instruments. Yes. Right? You don't necessarily do all of them. And probably you can do them all really well, but you have like your one. But being that young, do they – when they, even when they have high schoolers play auxiliary instruments – is that a thing that then they'll specialize on that? Or is it just like, you're going to play bass clarinet on this, but you'll switch back to clarinet? Do you specialize that that early even? You know, I don't think usually kids specialize that early. But in my case, I was just... You just were hooked. I was hooked. Yeah, and I'm like, this is what I want to do. So, you know, Bryce, you know, just to touch on him a little bit, you know, he's now a band director in Northern Kentucky. And, I, you know, the only contact we have now is through Instagram and Facebook. But it was really kind of interesting. So I got into bass clarinet because of him. And then, interestingly enough, when I got to high school, um, you know, I didn't want to march bass clarinet. And we were all required to do marching band. So a lot of the woodwind players, especially the bass clarinetists, we all marched in the bass drum line. So I ended up playing percussion (laughs) in high school. (laughs) And so I played bass drum. And then um, Bryce, you know, like I said, he was kind of like a musical mentor. He played tenor drums and then i moved from bass drum over to tenor drums in my senior year and um yeah that was it was a lot of fun was it everything you hoped it would be yeah yeah you know it was just like and i wasn't like i I never wanted to be a percussionist i just wanted to have fun with percussion because like i mean i had i had friends that were real drummers and now have very successful careers, uh, both in orchestral performing and in marching percussion, where they've made whole careers of specializing in marching percussion. And that's what they do. Um, But, you know, I just did it for fun. And so while I was in middle school and high school, um, I I got really serious about bass clarinet. And of course, auditioned for all state regional bands. So I made all district bands, all region bands and all state bands on bass clarinet. And it kind of like opened a whole new world up to me, especially like when I made all state and like getting to come in contact with like other peers that were as equally driven with what I wanted to do. It was just like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. How close I was going to ask this earlier. How close is uh, your hometown 
to like Louisville or uh, it's like three hours and forty five minutes. So it's I, I'm assuming it's not an, an enormous metropolitan area. No, look, luckily there are two very very good band programs in Murray. There's Murray High School and then there's Callaway County okay. High School. And there's a college which has uh, Murray State University has a very fine music education program. But you were probably not surrounded by no, yeah. No. So I've had somewhat similar experiences, not through Allstate, but yeah, you finally have that thing where you're surrounded by your people. Exactly. And it's kind of this eye-opening, oh man, it's so cool that... Oh, yeah. 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 And that was the coolest thing. Like, And I, 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 so I started taking lessons and I f- remember the first time I made all district and then like all region, I was like, yeah, what's, what's going to get me to that next level? And I started talking with people from around the state and these cats from Bowling Green, Kentucky, they were like, oh yeah, well, we study with the teacher at Western Kentucky University. And I was like, I need a teacher, you know? Yeah. And so I... So you made it to high school without a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I didn't I, I didn't start taking... I, I took bass clarinet lessons starting my sophomore year of high school. Interesting. And so I started studying with the clarinet teacher at Murray State University, Dr. Scott Locke. And he was kind of like, I don't know what to do with you because he was a clarinetist. And he was very much brought up in the old school tradition of, you know, you play clarinet. And, you know, auxiliary instruments, that's, you know, it's something you do if you have to do it. Um, but he played clarinet, very fine clarinetist, fine music educator. Um, and it's like, I didn't quite click with him so much. And it was just because I don't think he really knew what to do with me just yeah. because it's like, who, this high school kid is like obsessed with bass clarinet. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know any of the repertoire. And so he, he worked with me on scales and etudes and he prepared me for my all state auditions. Um, and he was great. Um, and then it came to like my senior year of high school and, I was kind of like, you know, I need a better musical experience than my high school band. And like, I loved my high school band. I I can't stress to you enough now in my professional career and looking back and like when I go work with music programs as a teacher, I am really thankful for the music education that I got in Murray, Kentucky. Um, I feel very fortunate. You know, it's like as you get older and you look back, hindsight's twenty twenty. Sure. I realized that. I did get a very good music education and I want to be upfront with you. When I was in high school, I didn't even know like Curtis existed. Oh, I was similar. Yeah. Like uh, Curtis and Juilliard, like it, they were like so far away and like, I didn't know they existed until I think it was like my sophomore year of college. Yeah. It's very, I have a similar experience. I'm, you know, from Lincoln, Nebraska mm-hmm. and it's the same thing. It's not a small town or anything Mm -hmm. like that and we i was in a very good band program i actually was um i guess my district was to go to a different school and my Mm -hmm. mom was like nope we gotta go to this school because the band program is so story it's like in high school and i my band director's name is terry rush Mm -hmm. um he's like a very important person to me now in my life you know because of how much care he had for each of the students Mm um and it was it was similar I just had really great instruction, but I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, so I knew nothing. And then Mm -hmm. going to undergrad and then going to like an ITG conference, International Trumpet Guild Conference, where Mm -hmm. you have trumpet players from everybody, kind of like with your Allstate story. I kind of saw the world outside 
a little bit and I was like, oh my gosh, this is bigger. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot oh, bigger absolutely. than I thought it was, you know. I thought I was pretty good for what I was doing, but looks like I have a long way to go. So that's interesting. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, yeah. growing up in Murray, Kentucky, the only schools that I heard about that I that I heard about from like teachers and such at the university, um, you know, obviously I heard about local schools like Western Kentucky University, University of Kentucky, stuff like that. But the big schools that like all the kids at Murray State wanted to go to, they were like, okay, after I do my music ed degree, like, man, it wouldn't be great to go get a performance degree at Cincinnati Conservatory or Indiana University. Those were the only two big right. schools that I knew of. Sure, sure. And um, so I guess it's kind of funny that I had like this blind determination <laughs> that I was like, I'm going to make it. And I'm like this like high school kid in a little town. But... um. So my band director had done everything that he could for me, you know, but I mean, it's, it's hard being a band director and like, you can't give the students private lessons and stuff because you're dealing with a whole bunch of students and administrative issues. So Gary Mullins had basically done as much as he could. So I started studying with Scott Locke at the university. And then after my junior year at Allstate, I was like, I gotta, I, I'm craving another musical experience. So... I had the balls to call the director of bands at the university and said, Hey, can I come audition for the wind ensemble? And so, first example of making opportunities for yourself. And I was just like, and like, and here's the other thing. Let me back up for just a second. Back in high school. In high school, everyone was like, oh, you have to get the distinguished diploma. They had different diplomas in our high school, like different course tracks. And um, pardon my French, but like my junior year of high school, I was on the dis like the comprehensive, whatever, like the almost the top diploma was. And I was just like, I talked with some like people at colleges and they were like, Oh, that's bullshit. Like, yeah. you know, no, no college cares. Right. High, like, you know, you could have a, you know, you could have a, uh, you know, a GED for all we care. You know, can you play your instrument? Exactly. That's the yeah, most yeah. important thing. So I dropped all the way from comprehensive down to like the bare bones standard diploma. So I had finished all my required coursework, basically my junior year of high school. And I was like, I got to like do something to fill the time. So you were allowed to fill time with college courses. So I filled it with, I applied at Murray state my senior year and I started taking music theory. So I took music theory, my uh, first semester of my senior year of high school. And I auditioned for the Murray state university wind ensemble. So I auditioned and my clarinet teacher called me and said, the director of bands is um, in a real conundrum with you because he said he's never like had been faced with this situation where he might have to put a high school student ahead of college kids. And so I was like, Oh, wow. So that's is that really common then for high schoolers to play with the no. ensemble. I was the first one to do that at Good Murray state. You. Good for you. Uh, which actually, and then it caused like, a snowball effect of like, there were like two or three other people from uh, one of the other high schools in town. And then they, then they cut it off. They were like, yeah, this is bad, you know, because we ultimately were doing this in high school. And then we went off to other programs. We didn't stay. So they thought it was bad for recruitment, um, which 
I totally get. Yeah. But yeah. I, for me, I was just looking for a, a musical experience. So they didn't put me ahead of any of the college kids. They were like, okay, well, we'll let you in. Why don't you play contrabass clarinet? I'm like, okay. So I went and I ended up playing contrabass clarinet and met another musical influence who was a music ed major there. Uh, his name was Chris Yu and went on to be a great band director at Murray high school. And, um, you know, took his marching band to state championships and has done great things since. And he was the other bass clarinetist there. And I have to say, I learned a lot about like how to act in an ensemble and how to, I don't know, have more of a professional demeanor, if you will, because keep in mind, I'm like this high school kid in an ensemble. I'm like 16 years old or 17 years old with, yeah. with like people in their mid twenties. And so I was just kind of quiet and he t really took me under his wing. And that's cool that um, somebody was supportive and not just like, who's this kid, you know? No, he was really supportive. Yeah. And, um, and I have to say it was a great musical experience. And so I did that. And, um, I was like, okay, I need to find a bass clarinet teacher. So I remember I went with my girlfriend at the time, uh, we went to hear the Nashville opera and the Nashville opera uses the Nashville symphony and they were playing Puccini's Torrindo, which was my first live opera experience. Yeah. It's a good one to have. And I was just like on the edge of my seat going like, oh my God, this is like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> And, you know, it's kind of like they say in Pretty Woman, you either love opera or you hate it. I have to say, I was like, I went off the deep end. I was like, this is so cool. And there were these really cool bass clarinet solos in it. So I was like, all right, I got to meet this dude. So I'm like flipping through the program and I see Dan Lockery. I'm like, okay, he's the bass clarinetist in the Nashville Symphony. So afterwards my girlfriend was like all right let's let's drive back to murray it was like a two and a half hour drive back to murray from nashville and i said no we got to go to the stage door <laughs> so nice. i went around to the stage door and i talked to this cellist and he said i think he's like out of the pit he's gone you know i'll check like you can imagine now being having a job you can imagine like what this is like you know yes some kid shows up and is like you know, ask for a member of the orchestra and you're like i don't know i'm trying to leave you know <laughs> yeah so this cellist was like nice enough he went back into the pit and he said hey dan's gone uh, i was like okay so at that time you know this is like the internet, we had like a 56K modem. So it's like, I couldn't like do like a Google search. There was no Google. So um, I was like, okay. I went to the local library and they had the greater Nashville like phone book. So <laughs> I went there. Oh man. I, I looked up Dan Lockery. The way we used to have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I looked up Dan Lockery in the phone book and I called him and I remember this. He didn't pick up. I got his answering machine. And the first thing that you hear is the Pink Panther on bass clarinet. But oh, but oh, but um, but oh, but oh, but oh. And you hear this. Hi, this is Dan. I'm not here right now. But please, leave, please leave a message. I left a message and I said, hi, you don't know me. My name is Calvin Falwell. I'm a clarinetist in Murray, Kentucky. I heard you play in the uh, Nashville Opera and I thought you sounded great. I'm looking for a teacher. That's incredible. <laughs> and so my mom would drive me to Nashville every two weeks. And I remember 
he charged me like 30 bucks an hour and like our lessons would go for like two and a half, three hours. And he would only charge me 30 bucks. And I'm like, it was like, it was amazing. And yeah. Yeah. I remember like, for instance, I mean, we were doing Rose Etudes and I asked him, Hey, like, what are you playing in the orchestra? And he's like, Oh, we're playing Daphnis and Chloe this week. And at that point, he told me to get this book called uh, um, Symphonic Repertoire for the Bass Clarinet. And I couldn't play any of this stuff. It was all like orchestral excerpts. And I remember, you know, he said, we're playing this in the next week. You should look at it. And so I looked at it. I didn't play it. I like, cracked open the book and was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, high school kid looking at Daphnis for the first time. And so I go to my next lesson. I said, hey, can I see the part? He shows it to me. And I'm like, can you play some of this for me? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he played it. And it's like my jaw is like wide open. And it's like it's like listening to a god play the bass clarinet. And I have to say, I learned so much from Dan. He was so generous with his time. And he's still in Nashville. And, you know, when I was in graduate school and I was home, I would always come down to Nashville and I'd play for him. And he was really, really supportive. I remember before I had ever won a job, I had advanced in some auditions and he said, you sound great, man. I'm pretty sure you're going to, you're going to get something. And that was like one of the biggest words. Just like hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like hearing somebody else believe in you, maybe the way you believe in yourself, but it's not quite happening yet. Yeah, I know. Totally. And so he helped me prepare for college auditions and um, basically in when it came to like taking uh, my college auditions, I was like, where am I going to apply? Because there was no program for bass clarinet anywhere. And at this time, Michael Lowenstern's first CD called Ear Spasm came out and he was like the first great name. bass clarinet, American bass clarinet soloists. And keep in mind, I didn't find out until like I was in college that there was this whole like world of bass clarinet solo stuff going on in Europe. Um, so armed with this CD in hand, I I said to Dan, I'm like, this is what I want to do. Like, where am I going to go to do this? You know? And he's like, well, you know, you should start looking at programs that have people who play in orchestras or soloists that teach bass clarinet. So I'm like looking at it. My only options were San Francisco Conservatory um, and then New England Conservatory. Um, and then I, again, at that time, I didn't know about Northwestern either. So I didn't know about J. Laurie Bloom. And the only reason why I knew about New England Conservatory and the Berkeley College of Music is because, you know, how at Allstate, there's the Music Educators Convention and they have like the convention floor where they're like universities from around the country they had a booth there and I'm like walking by and I'm like looking at like the list of faculty and I'm like, Oh, Craig Nordstrom, bass clarinetist, the BSO, I'm going to audition there. So, um, long story short, I couldn't go up there. I, so I made a tape, um, an actual cassette tape, there you, y- go. Y- you know, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. So I made a cassette tape, um, and I got in, and it's kind of interesting because 
you know, I got in there and I got into Berkeley and a little side note, I was into like recording technology as well. And I thought, well, I want to do bass clarinet performance and I would like to do some recording technology because I was in a punk rock band and I played bass guitar in that. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in a punk rock Just band. Just going to casually mention I played in a punk rock band. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, we had done recording projects and we played some festivals and um, that was fun. But whereas all the guys in the punk rock band were like, this is what I want to do. I was like, yeah, I want to do classical music. Um, <laughs> so um, were you guys good? pretty good i actually have recordings of the punk uh, of, of the punk group that i occasionally will listen back to with like fondness and sure you know, sure like, oh yeah that was i fun. was in a ska band when i was in high school oh that's perfect and we have stuff on we there's a christmas cd that's on i think it's on Bandcamp, that website Bandcamp, mm-hmm. and every christmas i'll listen to it you know because it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's actually a good cd you know we made a good cd um, but also same thing with the nostalgia of kind of, we used to do these Christmas shows where we'd all dress up as somebody and every single year I was a present. So we'd get like a big <laughs> computer monitor box and we'd cut holes in the sides of it. Oh, that's awesome. And then we'd wrap it with paper. Yeah. And then I would wear like tights, red tights. And then I was a present for the, for the show. Uh, there's pictures of it online somewhere, but, um, yeah, it was just like really, really fun, you know, fun times, fond memories of, mm-hmm. um, being in music, but not like the seriousness that oh, classical music can bring yeah. with it sometimes. Yeah, I it was and it was a great release. I, I had fun playing in a punk rock band and um, but, you know, classical music was my main focus. And I wanted to, again, pair that with like recording technology. And so I made the decision that I really, really, really wanted to go to Boston. And I was like, OK, we're going to do this. Well, acceptance letters came in and I got accepted. Um, but, you know, there's this whole thing called uh, financial aid. And I got some financial aid, but not enough. And my parents were like, you know, you could take out loans, but we don't think you should. We think student loans are going to be a big problem. And Shit. it's really kind of funny. My parents like saw that like late 90s, early 2000. We're like, we don't think you should like go to this school because you're going to have to take out student loans. Hindsight being 2020, I'm really, really thankful that sure. that did not. Sounds like obviously it all worked out for you pretty well, but so I was like, okay, so what am I going to do? Where am I going to go to college? So I got a scholarship to go to Murray state university. And so I was not thrilled about that. And I have to say it's not had nothing to do with the music department. Like the faculty at Murray state were great. It was the fact that it's the town I grew yeah, up yeah, in. You wanted you know, to get out of and home. I, just, I yeah. wanted to get away. Sure. So I did my freshman year at Murray state university and I was just like, I need to figure this out. So again, in Kentucky and in most States, they have this, like during the music educators conference, the intercollegiate band, basically yeah. the, the all state of college. Sure. So I did intercollegiate band and the rehearsals are at the University of Louisville, which is where I ultimately went and got my bachelor's degree. Go cards. Um, and so I went up there and I auditioned and, you know, I was sitting next to this bass clarinetist from the University of Louisville. Her name was Rosalind Mattingly. And I was like, man, she sounds great. And I started talking to her and I said, so where do you go to school? And she's like, oh, I go here. I'm at 
University of Louisville. And I was like, huh. So who teaches clarinet here? And she said, Dallas Tidwell. He just retired as the associate principal clarinet of the Louisville Orchestra. And there's this new guy here by the name of Tim Zavadil, who is the new associate principal clarinet, but he was the bass clarinetist of the Toledo Symphony before that. And I was like, oh, I should, I should check this out. So I walked straight up to the director of bands at UofL and I said, hey, I want to audition for transfer to the University of Louisville. And he said, oh, well, you need to speak to the clarinet faculty. So no sooner had I done that, I asked for the office number and I walked right up to the office of Dallas Tidwell, knocked on the door and said, hey, my name is Calvin Falwell. Um, can I audition for bass clarinet here? So these, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you making opportunities for yourself. It seems like this isn't a, a decision you made to actively try to do this. It seems like that's just how you were as a person. Yes. You were just un- unafraid to go and, you know, make a phone call or s- assert yourself as this is something I, I was think like, what's I, the worst thing that could happen? Well, I just think a lot of people aren't that way. You know, they think they might be bothering somebody with it. Oh, or yeah. they, no, totally. You know what I mean? I think like it doesn't, you know, especially at a younger age where you're unsure of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It seems like you maybe from having decided at such a young age of what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm seems like you were able to really just assert yourself and say, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to go do it. And I think there's, you know, as we talk more and more in this, in this uh, conversation here, I'm sure we'll find out even more ways that that presented itself. Oh yeah, no, but totally. it's just very cool to see, even at an early age in these small things, mm-hmm. you were unafraid to, to go after the thing that you wanted in that moment, which I think is very, very important ultimately for mm-hmm. any kind of success you know, maybe there's failure involved, but being willing to go after it in the first mm-hmm. place because you think it's what's right is a is a very important trait, I think. And it's mm-hmm. very cool to see how you had that just kind of from the get go. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when I went into that first meeting with Dallas Tidwell, he said, OK, well, come back and play for me at such time later this day. So I went to the practice room, started woodshedding some stuff and I came back and, you know, Going back to, I was studying with Dan Lockery in Nashville, and he kind of, you know, he he went to the University of Michigan, and for one of his degrees, he did a lot of research in um, bass clarinet repertoire, and so he imparted a lot of that knowledge to me. So I started really getting into contemporary avant-garde bass clarinet literature. So I, um, I had been working on some of that stuff. But then I had also um, been working on a lot of transcriptions of um, Viola da Gamba pieces and also some Bach transcriptions. So I go into this meeting with Dallas and he said, okay, you know, so you want to major on bass clarinet? I said, yeah. He's like, okay, well, I've never had a bass clarinet major at Louisville. Um, We have a lot of people who play bass clarinet very well. And, um, you know, he has had success. He's, he's got students in or symphony orchestras and he's got students in military bands and teaching at major universities. And he said, you know, we really emphasize that you play all of the auxiliary instruments here and get that experience, but we've never had someone just focus on bass clarinet. So what do you have to play? So I played my scales, played my rose etudes. Um, and I remember played, I played a Galliard piece and, uh, for viola da gamba. And he was like, huh? Okay. So I started playing extended range scales and bass clarinet. He's like, okay, I can, we, we can work with this. So you should audition 
So fast forward, submitted my application, went up to audition for transfer, and I feel really good about the audition. Like the band directors all came into my audition because they were kind of curious, like someone's auditioning on bass clarinet. So I go in and I audition on bass clarinet and I feel very thankful, like little side note about my parents. So my parents were incredibly supportive. Like I can't stress that enough. Um, and my senior year of high school, I said, I need an instrument. I need a bass clarinet because I've been using the high school's instrument, which lucky for me, they had a very good LeBlanc instrument. But you couldn't take that I couldn't where take, you wanted to go. I couldn't take that with me. <laughs> so they were like, okay, you need a good instrument. So my parents, I don't know how they did it. Um, they bought me a buffet prestige, low C bass professional low C bass clarinet senior year of high school come to find out it took them like five or six years to pay it off. Um, but it was completely amazing. So here I am this kid applying for transfer with like a professional orchestral level horn, you know, and nowadays it's commonplace to find, you know, a high school student who has this instrument or, um, you know, a college kid who has a really high level instrument, but you know, late nineties, you know, kid from Kentucky, you know, you know, randomly wanting to play bass clarinet. So I auditioned and I was lucky enough to be awarded a full scholarship to the university of Louisville school of music. So went there, had an amazing time, studied with Dallas on clarinet and studied with Tim on bass clarinet. And it was about my, into my junior year um, that uh, Tim was like, so what are your plans? And I said, well, I want to go to graduate school. Um, I, I want to play in an orchestra. And he's like, well, if you want to play in an orchestra, you need to be able to play clarinet at the same level that you play bass clarinet. Which we talked about as not always. Not always. It's not a thing. Yeah. They, yeah interesting that he would... So I had one of those, like, uh, the proverbial, like, come to Jesus moment. (laughs) And um, I was like, at that point, I'm like, okay, I stopped bass clarinet. I mean, I still played it in ensembles, but we switched lessons. At that time, I was taking uh, regular bass clarinet lessons uh, with Tim. And then every now and then I'd take a clarinet lesson with uh, uh, Dallas because he said I needed to be able to have some facility on clarinet, which he was doing really rudimentary stuff with me on clarinet because it was like, it was so foreign to me going to a smaller instrument, having to cover the holes. And I just didn't have that experience. So I made that decision my junior year. I'm like, all right, having had these conversations with both Dallas and Tim, I was like, okay, basically quit bass clarinet cold Turkey and bought a set of clarinets Again, my parents were very, very supportive in this endeavor. So I got a set of clarinets and Tim and I did a crash course on how to play the clarinet. (laughs) So all the stuff we had been doing on bass clarinet didn't really help out on clarinet because it was just such a smaller instrument and musically the things you had learned you you probably yeah yeah, which is good uh it was just getting used to a different embouchure and actually covering the holes on the instrument so um 
he was like, you know, I know this is going to be really difficult at first, but the better you get at clarinet, the better bass clarinet player you're going to be. I'm like, okay. So I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm totally cool with this. And I realized that I, I pretty, pretty much sucked at clarinet my junior year. So I went from like playing in the wind ensemble on bass clarinet to like, all right, got to make it my goal. Got to make wind ensemble on clarinet. So I hustled hard on clarinet doing Behrman scales or as etudes, like everything my teacher told me to do. And like, I got really frustrated. I realized that I pretty much sucked at first. And so after lots of frustration, what felt like just banging my head against the wall in a practice room nonstop, I worked up the audition repertoire for the wind ensemble for the next semester. And beginning of the semester, I went in and I auditioned. And I ended up getting last chair in the wind ensemble. Well, that's pretty good, though, right? That yeah, was the goal, right? You know, Making wind I mean, ensemble. I felt pretty accomplished for the fact that I had this one semester crash course on clarinet, and I'm like, okay, I got got to do this. So I did that, just focused solely on clarinet last uh, two years of undergrad, and um, I did it in my junior recital all on clarinet. And which was a huge step for me. Um, and because there were definitely moments that I just felt uncomfortable on the instrument. And um, then senior year, I worked my butt off through the senior year and um, went from last chair my junior year to first chair my senior year and playing in the orchestra and just super laser focused on clarinet. And I got a lot better. And two things happened for me um, my junior and senior year. One, um, I auditioned for the American Wind Symphony, and I got accepted. And I, I th- I'm pretty sure that they only accepted me because of my bass clarinet playing skills because I was given the bass clarinet spot. Um, and it was interesting to me because that was my first summer festival experience, and Again, going back to the kid from Western Kentucky who didn't know that Curtis and Juilliard yeah, I'm sure that was very eye-opening. I had no idea about summer festivals. Right. I, Same no, thing just, for me, too. Yeah. I would see these posters on the wall in the School of Music. I'm like, what are these things? Yeah. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, you know, some people were like, oh, you should audition for these summer festivals. And I... I wrote a letter and I requested information, you know, back when you had to do that. Um, and I was like... So I auditioned, I remember, for the Swanee Music Festival. And I got in, and I'm like, what? You mean I have to pay thousands of dollars yeah, to do right. this? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> so, and, so that's why I did the American Wind Symphony, because you didn't have to pay money. They provided you room and board and stuff. So I did that, and I got exposed to a couple really good players. So this clarinetist named Kristen and who is now principal clarinetist of the West Point Academy band. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, she was at, uh, Youngstown state university. And then she ended up going to DePaul studying with Larry Combs, just super amazing technique, really amazing technique. And I, I, I sat next to her and I was just completely blown away. <laughs> and then uh, a girl by the name of uh, Chantel Brown, who was at Michigan State, and she's now in one of the, um, I, th- 
think what one of the service bands. I'm not quite sure. And then um, another guy from Indiana who I can't remember his name. He was fantastic. Um, and I was just blown away by these players. And I felt like, like, I'm like, why did they choose me? Cause like all these players, like they're really good. So like, I was kind of down on myself a little bit, but then I thought, you know, they chose me and obviously there's something good about my playing that people see. So I just need to, you know, like I had that moonstruck moment, like, you know, having Cher slap me, like snap out of it. So I snapped out of it and I was like, okay, you know, I'm here because this is what I need to be doing. And also that summer I played in a masterclass for um, my future teacher, Ron Samuels, second clarinetist of the Pittsburgh Symphony, who just blew me away as a teacher and as a performer. And I was like, okay, I need to pursue this. So fast forward to my senior year. Um, I, through various channels, I heard that there was a bass clarinet concerto being premiered in uh, Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I was like, ooh. But this composer I'd never heard of, Ezra Latterman, who at the time taught at the Yale School of Music. And the concerto was being premiered by Dick Page, the bass clarinetist of the Pittsburgh Symphony. So again, this time there is the internet. And so I go on the internet and I search Richard Page, Pittsburgh, PA, and I had to go through a list of a couple of different people. And then finally I got to the right one. He said, hi, you don't know me, but I'm a student at the University <laughs> of Louisville. Starting to see a trend here, yeah. <laughs> I said, I am going to drive up and hear this concerto performance. He said, where are you coming from? I said, Louisville. He said, Louisville? I, you know, I, I have a former classmate who was principal clarinet there, Mike McGeehan, who had had retired as principal clarinet. And he's like, we struck up a little conversation. He said, yeah, come on up. I'll give you tickets. And, and I said, can I come meet you after the performance? He said, sure. So I went to the performance, drove all the way up to Pittsburgh. And in this one marathon session, went to the performance and in i was just blown away by the sound of the pittsburgh symphony now mind you i had been going to the louisville orchestra pretty much every single week in undergrad and fantastic orchestra and i every chance i could get i would go down to nashville and hear the nashville symphony but that was my first time hearing a major symphony orchestra live and it's like you know it's like oh the clouds are parting and the sun's coming down uh, and I, I heard the first thing that they played on the program was the music from Benjamin Britten's Three Penny Opera. Oh, and yeah. like the two clarinets together. And I'm like, this is Michael Rusnick and Ron Samuels. And I had never heard clarinet sound like that before in my life. And so I go backstage and I meet the clarinet section and um, I meet Richard Page. And he was like, so cool, so gracious. And you know, he said, come back up sometime again. We'll have a lesson. I'm like, all right, great. So as I'm walking out, you know, it, it's really kind of funny because it was overheard that I was from Louisville and there were some people in the PSO that knew some players in the Louisville orchestra that I was uh, kind of mutual friends with. And this guy comes up to me and says, hey, we're going across the street to have a beer. You want to come? 
And I was like, sure. Hi, I'm Calvin. What's your name? My name is Bill Cavallaro. Nice. <laughs> nice. Like, so I go across the street. And I'm having a beer with the principal horn yeah. of the Pittsburgh Symphony. It's just cool, too, you know, because I'm sure that was a a great experience and that wouldn't have happened unless you were like, I'm just going to go do this. I'm just going to go drive and hear this thing and call this guy up, you know? And so like being, being brave enough to like, you know, send him a message, send uh Richard page a message yeah, and say, I want to come do this. Is that cool? He's like, absolutely. Um, led to like all this other stuff, you know? And what's cool is we're sitting there at the bar at the Roosevelt hotel, right across the street from Heinz hall. And I said, so do you teach? And he's like, oh, yeah, I teach at Duquesne University. Well, now he teaches at Carnegie Mellon. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, you know, if you're a string player, you're going to want to go to CMU. But if you're a wind and brass player, you're going to want to go to Duquesne. And I was like, really? Cool. So I'm like, who teaches clarinet there? Oh, Michael Rusnick. And we just hired uh, the new second clarinetist of the Pittsburgh Symphony, Ron Samuels, who I had played in a master class yeah. for. And so immediately... I get back and I start talking with Tim, my teacher, who played with Ron in the Toledo Symphony when Ron was principal clarinet there. And he said, I think you should really pursue Duquesne University. And I kind of like, I, it's not that I poo-pooed it, but I was just like, I, I kind of was like, I wanted a name on my master's degree. And, you know, the more and more I learned and got exposed to big schools and stuff, I kind of was like, oh, I, I need to go to a big school for my master's degree. So I had it in my head that I had to go to Indiana University. And side note for anyone who went to Indiana University who's listening to this, it's a fabulous school, great faculty. Um, but I was kind of blinded by the bright lights of, yeah. you know, a big university. Right, right. So I go up there, have a lesson with the teacher, one of the teachers, Howard Klug, hit it off. And... You know, I went back to my teacher, Tim, and said, hey, you know, I think it's between these schools. And I remember I auditioned at DePaul and Roosevelt and Indiana and Duquesne. So, you know, I remember in my DePaul audition, uh, <laughs> I wanted to study with John Broussier, the associate principal mm -hmm. of the Chicago Symphony. And they told me, oh, yeah, by the way, John Yeh is not going to be teaching here anymore. And this is like in my audition i'm like well damn well, all right well cross that off yeah list. yeah um so i auditioned at roosevelt where he was going to be and uh what was kind of interesting about all of this is my teacher i made a an important decision i mean early on i trusted my teachers a hundred percent and my teacher at louisville tim was like you know if you want my advice, all of these schools are very, very good, but I think you should go study with Ron at Duquesne. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, it may be a smaller school, but you're going to get to study every week with a member of the Pittsburgh Symphony, and you're going to get to hear the Pittsburgh Symphony every yeah, year. True, and true. at that time, you know, it was coming down to like money. I had scratched the Chicago schools off the list just simply because... I did not want to take out student loans. And I, I was really adamant about that. So it was between Indiana University and Duquesne University. And Tim was like, you know, as good as a school as Indiana is, you're in Bloomington. Wouldn't you rather be able to hear the Pittsburgh Symphony every single week? 
And then later on that week, I played for Andrea Levine, the principal clarinet of the Louisville Orchestra. And she said, Calvin, if you can hear the Pittsburgh Symphony every single week and you can study with Ron Samuels, that's what I would do. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I went to Pittsburgh and um, studied with Ron for two years. And, you know, I I kind of... um, ran into some truths in my master's degree. And basically my teacher was like, okay, so if you're going to do this, you have to be a hundred percent committed to this. You can't be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to work at a restaurant and, you know, I'm going to like take auditions and stuff, which some people have done and have been successful. Um, He said, you need to commit to this. And you need to make your opportunity. So I'm like, okay. Summer before I go to uh, Pittsburgh, I got the names through various searches of all the personnel managers for all the regional orchestras around Pittsburgh. And the summer before, I just started blasting out emails, resumes, and hustling as hard as I could. And in the end, I ended up uh, uh, getting a position with the Johnstown, Pennsylvania symphony playing bass clarinet. And I played with the McKeesport symphony and, um, played with a a couple other small groups in the area. And, um, I also started teaching, uh, part-time as the part-time assistant band director in the Pittsburgh public schools. Okay. (laughs) So in in teaching private lessons at the performing arts high school and, um, Interestingly enough, one of the students that I worked with, um, and I'm like, I, I feel very thankful that I'm kind of like a footnote in his past, um, um, uh, Leo Pellegrino. And if you've ever heard of Lucky Chops Brass Band, he's the Barry Sachs player in it, or Too Many Zoos. Yeah. Um, and last year, it was like one of the proudest moments. Like he opened up doing Barry Sachs solos in a hot pink suit at the Proms Festival. And like I taught him when he was in middle school and He's high school. He's the dude who has all the moves when he plays. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I remember so, the first time I saw uh, they were like in a in a subway in New York or something like that, yeah. right? And then he's just like dancing and making these sounds that shouldn't really be possible exactly. on a saxophone. And then on top of that, yeah, it's like his whole body is like part of the presentation. And I was like, this is like kind of the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my yeah. life. You know, and like. I have to tell you, like, he was driven. And it's like, I, I enjoyed working with him so much. Like, so for the two years I was at Duquesne, I taught him private clarinet lessons and just watching him flourish as a clarinet player. So, um, nice. you know, I haven't talked to him in years. We're friends on Facebook, but um, I'm, I wish him the world. He deserves every bit of what he's doing. And That's so cool. I That's feel so cool. You know, him. I feel thankful that yeah. I like worked with him whenever he was young. Um, yeah. Yeah. And by no means do I take any credit for well, what yeah, he's but doing. It's just, but... Yeah. It's cool that, you know, you're, you're connected to, um, it's, it, you know, musicians, we musicians will say often that, uh, the music world is very small. It is. And it's smaller than you even realize it is. And you, when you know that it's small, you mm-hmm. know, you think, Oh, the music world is small. But then when you hear a story like that, it's just like it's even smaller and stuff like that, which can be a really good and sometimes a really bad thing, depending yeah, on no, what your reputation might be. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, started freelancing, started playing and um, 
you know, Pittsburgh was a great place because it was a city where I could hear the PSO every week. I was able to grow artistically and play in regional orchestras and have great opportunities. And immediately, you know, I hit it off with Ron. One, I was just like, I had never heard anyone sound like that. And it's like, even to this day, when I'm preparing for an audition now, I will fly up to Pittsburgh and I will play for Ron. And I still play for my teacher in Philadelphia. We'll get to that in a second. But like, even now, when I hear Ron and he's like, had this amazing career, it's like audition quality excerpts. And he just like pulls it out. And he's like, yeah, I give myself like a B minus on that. I'm like, bro, that's like better than I could ever dream to play. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. And you still have that resource. So I bought into exactly what he was saying early on. And I'm like, this, this is what I need to be doing. And real quick side note, I didn't do any orchestral excerpts in undergrad. Tim kind of like forbid it. And he was like, you need to focus on scales and etudes and really the building blocks. And I can't thank him enough for that. And a um, little footnote about Tim. He's no longer in the Louisville Orchestra. He's principal bass clarinet of the Minnesota Orchestra. And he is a beast on the instrument. And I just want to give a shout out to him because I owe so much to sure. him. Yeah, that um, sounds like it. And, you know, and also to one of my other teachers, um, Dallas, who a couple of years ago died because of cancer. Um, I owe a lot to him because he took a chance on me at Louisville and he was a very fatherly figure to me. And I want to say I, I learned less about clarinet from him, but more importantly, I learned like everything about life from him. And that was the most important lesson that I can take away from my time with Dallas was I learned a lot about life. So I just want to do a quick shout out for them. Sure. Yeah. Um, in, in Pittsburgh, you know, that was the first time I started playing orchestral excerpts and Ron was like very hardcore about it. He said, I want to hear Behrman scales. I want to hear Mozart and I want to hear orchestral excerpts. And if it's not on an audition, I don't want to hear it. So this is on bass clarinet or clarinet? Clarinet and bass clarinet. Okay. So immediately he started like drilling me on orchestral repertoire, which I am so thankful for. Because he told me, he said, you're in a really unique opportunity right now. Because all the master students that were there, they had been doing orchestral excerpts and the Mozart since undergrad, but I hadn't. So I was a clean slate. He said, you're... Rather than having to undo bad habits. Yeah, you can learn it right from the beginning. I learned yeah. it right from the beginning. Yeah, that's interesting. And Which is probably a better way to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. So here's the funny thing. My second year of my master's degree, like my classmates, there were a bunch of classmates that had more experience than I did. And I remember I went down to like Naples and I ended up getting runner up for the bass clarinet audition down there, like my third audition in. And like I started advancing in auditions and I was just like, I was kind of freaking out because I'm like, I'm not ready for this. But it was because, you know, I was taught properly how to audition. And I remember this one conversation with Ron, you know, he said, he gave me some quick numbers. He said, you know, Calvin, you have to understand Nobody wins an audition. If you're Mike Rusnick or if you're John Broussier, you win auditions. Right, right. Like there's nobody who's going to be better yeah. than you or like Ricardo Morales. But the rest of us, we just do as much as we can not to be eliminated. 
Yeah, I could could buy that. So he was just like, you need to think about an audition like this. You go to the audition, already 75% of those people have no business being at the audition. And then he said, you know, there's like people that are in the 80th percentile that they can play all the notes, all the right rhythms, but they're not going to advance. So, and then you get to those people that are in the 90th percentile where they play all the right notes, all the right rhythms, right inflections, and they maybe they'll advance sometimes. And he said, right now you are getting into the 90th percentile, but what you need to strive for is the 99th percentile where you advance consistently. So how do you do that? I mean, this is something I'm wondering currently for myself, because when I was at Northwestern, I was doing pretty well at auditions. I would advance, you know, relatively often, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like a straight line, right? Like it's not like, oh, I advanced at this audition. So now I'm going to advance at every audition I take. Um, but I feel now I'm playing better than I've ever played. I yeah. feel like I'm playing more musically than I've ever played, more you know, commanding, and yet I'm doing worse in auditions than I've ever done. Do you think there's a way that you, with what you just said, do you think there is a way that you can um, sort of, um, I guess the best way to say it would be ensure, quote, ensure mm-hmm. that you're going to advance by getting yourself into a 99th percentile, or do you think there's an element of luck involved? You know well, what I, mean? I think there's. it's not so much... It's not so much luck. I, I think that you you it all comes down to your preparation. Like how have you prepared for it? And also it, it you know, I, I'm also a firm believer that no matter if it's an orchestra or a university, the committee doesn't even know what they want. You know, because you have so many different opinions and personalities on an on an audition committee. Um so I think a lot of it comes down to consistency. And preparation. So the one of the things that he really drilled with me is just being consistent, having clean sound. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I remember my second year of grad school, I was advancing in a whole bunch of auditions. And I kind of had, had this freak out moment at the end of it. And I'm like, I haven't won a job. What am I going to do? It's like at the end of the master's degree, it's like there's this void at the end because again, I was a student. I had this mindset of like, oh, you, you go to school, you get your master's degree. I'm going to win an audition. And then I'm starting to realize it doesn't work like that. And so going back to what you said, like, how do you advance consistently? And I think it comes down to not only consistency, but also what do you have to say in the excerpt? Not making sure. it sound too mechanical. I mean, you have to have the mechanics there, but I think it's also important to like have some soul and some personality in it. Um, but I think that's the stuff that polarizes people, right? It is. And so I think that if I were to guess any reason why I may be doing quote worse than auditions, it's because I've headed in the direction of having more soul, so to speak to use mm-hmm. the word you used. And so I feel like as you know, if you're playing sort of more middle of the road, you're going to quote offend less people, right? If you want to put it that way. Yeah. So I think the more demonstrative you get, people have people start making a decision more readily. True. I like this or I don't like this, and I kind of believe that's actually where true art lies, right? Mm-hmm. True art, you're going to look at it and you're going to decide I like this or I don't. You know, there's very rarely any middle of the road. I agree with you. And so I think the closer you get to becoming your own interpretation of this is what i want Mm -hmm. i think uh you're gonna start polarizing more and more even now like when i prepare for an audition just to go off on this little tangent um when i prepare for an audition i have noticed something 
if I go to a peer orchestra, nine times out of 10, a peer orchestra being like anything from like 36 weeks to like 42 weeks, nine times out of 10, I will not advance. And I have gotten comments back saying, you play too soloistically and you took too many liberties. But then when I go to a major symphony orchestra, I make the finals. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's like, I just find it really interesting because, you know, I, I play in an orchestra that have, that all the principals play with a lot of personality, which I think is kind of good. I sure. mean, my principal, the principal clarinetist in my group, Bharat Chandra, is amazing. And he plays with a lot of personality. And it's like hard not to be influenced by that. Of course, of course. Um, I mean, that's actually your job, right? Yeah, no, that's your absolutely. literal job is to is to fit in in with whatever is going on around you. So oh, yeah. of course it's hard to be not influenced by that. So like musically speaking, like, you know, when I've advanced in major auditions, you know, it's because I've gone in there and I've played it exactly how I want to play it. And that's and, probably your best advice, right? Yeah, Just, exactly. I mean, in going back to exactly what you said, art provokes a strong reaction. Either you love it or you hate it. And I think like as an artist, I would rather have someone just adamantly hate my playing as opposed to being like, you know, yeah, it's, you know. It's, right. I completely, it's, actually it's pretty completely good. agree. And I think trumpet can be sometimes even a more polarizing instrument yeah. right? because it's like if you go too far in one direction, now you're like really outside of what somebody might want you know and sometimes sounds on the trumpet are not the most pleasing absolutely you know what i mean so it's you could leave you're trying not to but sometimes you could leave the realm of like this is pleasing but in the orchestra Mm -hmm. when you play those non-please like in the rite of spring Mm -hmm. i'm sure most of the stuff that i'm doing is not quote a pleasing sound you Mm -hmm. know what i mean if you were to sit there and listen to it but out in the hall in the the whole the collective it's like what it needs to be you know so i think that for trumpet players sometimes it can be even a a weirder discrepancy between like what would you do in the orchestra versus Mm -hmm. is there a difference and so maybe i'll ask you that question do you feel like um you do play differently in an audition versus a concert setting do you have a different approach for them you know early on that was really difficult for me because i played one way in the audition and i feel like a lot of students have this problem it's like i know how to play in the audition i know like things I have to hit. But then playing in the orchestra was really different. Um, and I'll especially get to this when I talk about like my first real job. Um, because you have so many things coming at you at once. And I feel like I was kind of um, not blindsided, but naive to the reality of what like, playing in an orchestra. Yeah, was, sure. Was I think that happens like probably to everybody in their first their first job, you know. And but you know now, I think you know the the saying is well, yeah. I'm basically that you generally play a lot louder in the orchestra than you do in the audition, and there are certain like things you have to do, like you know, like I always think about in terms of preparation, okay, I've got a read that I can play the beautiful Mahler six solo, but then it can also peel paint and play Shostakovich violin concerto. Um, so you have to be able to do all of it in the audition and do all of it well. Um, but I feel like in the orchestra, I do the same kind of stuff, but just a little bit more exaggerated just sure. so because you're, you're trying to cut. So you do just pull back a little bit on your yeah, top end. Dynamics. Just a little bit. Do you feel like you might take, Uh, as many risks on the soft side or do you try to do that about the same do you have i do actually try and take some risks in the Mm -hmm. audition um like 
Uh, there's this one, uh, I think it's Cacciatorian Piano Concerto. And it's a big, beautiful bass clarinet solo. And I, I take some dynamic risks in it, I, I some rubato risks. Um, and then also there's, I, I sometimes throw in a little vibrato, as crazy as it seems. Um, like, for instance, uh, I remember New York Phil and National Symphony and... I think there was one other audition. I'm forgetting what other audition it was, but they asked for um, the Swan from Carnival of the Animals, but played on bass clarinet. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like preparing for it, and I thought to myself, you know, people are going to play this. It's going to and it's going to be really boring. You know, I, I bet that's what it's going to sound like. So I tried to emulate a cello as much as possible with vibrato and you know musical choices and. Um, my hunch was right, you know, and going back to like, you know, whether someone's going to love it or someone's going to hate it, it definitely provokes a strong reaction. And sure, I guess it was a risk too, that you, oh, you yeah. chose to take that risk. And in that case, it in those cases, it, it it's paid off, right? But yeah, no, could, totally. I guess suppose it have not have paid off too. So, oh yeah. And you know, honestly, I'm to the point in my career now where, if I take an audition, I should play the way I play. And if an orchestra doesn't like it, then I probably don't want to play in that orchestra. Yeah, it's a nice ability to say, right? I'm in a similar boat. And it's very weird to think this because for the majority of my uh, performing life and mm-hmm. taking auditions life, um, I haven't had a job. Yeah. And so the ability to say, well, if I don't win this, it's okay because I have a job. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit different. You have a little bit more relaxed, but then that also like feeling like you fit in in your current job mm-hmm. so much so that if it's a place where you're not going to fit in, you would rather just mm-hmm. stay at your the place you're at, even if it's a step up. In Absolutely, terms of orchestra clout, so to speak. Absolutely, and you know, kind of when we talk about like what I'm doing currently right now, I think. I definitely want to come back to this because what you're saying really makes a lot of sense and actually how you put things into perspective in your life and how that changes your playing. So, you know, going back to like, you know, finishing up graduate school, like I I was a little freaked out because I'm like, nothing had panned out. And I'm like, what do I do? So I was in that conundrum where it's like, do I stay at Duquesne and do an artist diploma? because I've got nothing else to do and it would be full scholarship again. And I'm not going to have to like pay anything or do I go out into the world and try and make myself some opportunity. And wait for the listener before you find the answer to that question, I want you to think a or B did Calvin get an artist diploma or did he go out and make opportunities for himself? (laughs) Vote now. Now we'll hear the answer. So I remember being in a lesson with Ron and he said, you know, Calvin, your problem is you can't make the decision right now and I'm not going to make it for you. I have a suggestion for you, but, you know, I'm, you know, you're the one who's going to have to ultimately make that decision. And he said that I need to basically sink or swim. And which is now the advice that I have given to all of my like graduate students and stuff like sink or swim, buddy, you know, and it's like I knew in my heart and it's like I've known this since I was like in sixth grade band that, 
this is what I want to do. And this is like, I've never had any doubt. Um, as ridiculous as that sounds, I've never had any doubts about like what I'm doing as a profession. And I had already made it my number one goal to support myself as a musician in graduate school, which in grad school, I pretty much did, though I did have a job as a barista for one of those years. So I was good at being a barista. Yes, I actually did was. Did you like view it as the challenge of like, I'm going to learn and I'm going to get better? Or were you just like, this is a job? This is, just... I, mean, I was like, no, this is a job. And I enjoyed coffee. I loved coffee culture. And, you know, I think a lot of musicians gravitate towards coffee culture. But so I got a plan. So I did audition for some programs. So I auditioned for an artist diploma at Yale and I auditioned for uh, my doctorate at Peabody. And I was waitlisted at Yale. Which like was like soul crushing for me yeah. because I wanted that so bad. I thought if I'm going to go to school, I'm going to go to Yale. I'm going to get an artist diploma. And honestly, it was probably the best thing not going to Yale. Um, and that's not because like I have any bitterness, but like just simply because I don't think that was, you know, the right step for where I was as a player at that point. I'm kind of like I can say now, you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think I would have been eaten alive at, at Yale because, I mean, there are monster players there in those, those artist diploma programs. So I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I got into the DMA program at Peabody, but I ultimately did not go because I didn't get enough financial aid. And I was like, you know, should I take student loans out? And again, my parents were like, no. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. What year are we talking about now? Ish. Um, I done, I was done with my master's degree. Uh, so this is like 2006, 2007. Okay. And, um, so I was like, okay, I need to get a job. I need to get a job teaching or playing. And I was like, okay, so here's what I'm going to do because of the power of the internet. And we had a great career services department at Duquesne. I sat down with the School of Music Career Services and they completely redid my resume. We formulated a nice cover letter and I put some reference letters together. And I just sent out a whole bunch of emails. And now I have to tell you, the way I did this, like, because Google was out and Google Maps was new. So I went to Google Maps and I typed in orchestras for like a geographic area. And it's like, bloop, 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 bloop. they all popped up. And I went one by one and emailed every personnel manager. I emailed every department chair at a university, community college, all the way from Portland, Maine, down to Miami, Florida, all the way over to the Mississippi River. So for those of you that voted B, Calvin made opportunities for himself. Yes. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I hustled and I I got a lot of no's back. Um, and I, I actually got one really encouraging email from the clarinet professor at the University of South Carolina who really applauded what I was doing and said, hey, you know, um, keep at it. There's nothing for you with the South Carolina Philharmonic and there's nothing for you at the University of South Carolina. But, you know, it was like a really encouraging yeah, email. Yeah. And so I get this email out of the blue from Holy Family University in North Philadelphia said, we need someone to teach two sections of music appreciation. Can you come for an interview this week? And it was just for like a part-time adjunct position. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. 
so I bought an Amtrak ticket, took the train from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, found out how to get through there on uh, public transit and got there, did the interview and they offered me the job on the spot. And so I started teaching there. So basically I didn't do an artist diploma or do, an, do another degree. I packed up and I moved to Philadelphia, which incidentally, that was where my girlfriend at the time was doing a master's degree in oboe performance at Temple. So I was like, okay, this works out. So I started teaching at Holy Family University and I did some, I taught music appreciation also at Wilmington University in Wilmington, Delaware. And I, again, just started emailing orchestras nonstop. And so I started playing with the Bronx Symphony Orchestra in New York, Opera Orchestra of the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn Phil, um, started playing with the Lancaster Symphony. Um, I started working with the new music group at the University of Pennsylvania and um, uh, Symphony in C, which is a training orchestra oh, yeah, in Camden, New Jersey. Is it Ross and Milanov's yeah. thing? Yeah. And so, and I got to like rub shoulders with some really awesome clarinet players. One of which is G Lee, who had uh, a couple of years as acting second clarinet in the Philly orchestra, played in the national symphony for this last year. Uh, another clarinetist, Alexander Bedanko, who is just, just the smashing clarinet soloist now. And he like subs. When I talk about like sub work, he does like, he subs his principal clarinet in the Chicago symphony, London Philharmonic, you know, concert about stuff like that. And he was a student at Curtis. And another one is Johnny Tessier, who plays in uh, Danish National Orchestra. And so I got to like be in contact with these like really high level clarinetists who were students, but were also doing freelance work. And I got in contact with some freelancers in the area that were very good to me. So immediately I spent a year in Philadelphia and I built this network of freelancing and of teaching adjunct and I made it work, paid my rent. And, but that's not the most amazing experience that happened in Philadelphia. I was like, I need a teacher because Ron, before I left was like, look, you're on the right track, but you're not yet ready to yeah. sever the cord. You need, you still need to have a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I did what I usually do. <laughs> I looked up, uh, you know, the, New bass clarinetist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Paul Demers, was a classmate of Tim Zavido, my teacher in undergrad. And they were classmates at DePaul. And he said, you know, Paul's the new bass clarinetist. You should contact him. So I'm like, okay. So I look him up in the phone book. And I call him up and I said, hi, you don't know me. My name is Calvin Falwell. <laughs> and um, I hear you went to school with my teacher from undergrad. I'm looking for a teacher. Um, can, can we meet? So he's I like. I feel like that should be. <laughs> sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. In fact, that if you were going to write an autobiography, the title of it should be, you don't know me. My name's Calvin Falwell. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, he gave me his email address and we exchanged information and I emailed, emailed him my resume and stuff. And, you know, we met for coffee next to the Kimmel Center. And I just immediately launched into like selling myself to him. I was like, hi, you know, this is what I'm working on now. I'm teaching here. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this, you know. And it's like, 
I, I looking back on it now, it was kind of like I'm trying to be like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But please right. think I'm worthy. Yeah. And, Which that respect is good, you know, instead of being like, there's no reason you shouldn't do this. Like having that amount of respect and feeling yeah. like you have to earn that opportunity yeah oh like totally yeah it's a good mentality to have for anybody i think who wants to break into any scene with anybody especially the philly orchestra right just to have that amount of respect of you know whether or not this is a huge philly orchestra opportunity or it's somewhere small Mm -hmm. somebody's going to be the person that could potentially get you work if you're there new absolutely or you can study with or whatever it is yeah and just having that a small amount of respect of like i need to earn this opportunity not oh, oh yeah. i have this pedigree so i'm i'm owed this opportunity that small subtle change in mindset i think can do a lot for how you present yourself to those people and look i gotta tell you like i bonded so much with paul like i have like each teacher defines a different period in my life and like paul really became my mentor and like early on i was paying 100 bucks an hour to play for him which was like that was really hard for me at yeah, that that's time real money yeah and you know he would always go like two hours in the lesson and it was i think it was like after a month or two of paying for lessons i went out and i did well in an audition and he said and I called him up and I said, look, I did well on an audition, but something's got to change. Like I'm 150% committed to this and like, I need to change my situation. Like I need, I've got to do this. And he's like, all right. And he basically in the next lesson told me, he said, look, I see a lot in you and I really believe in you. And I don't, I want you to use your money to pay for taking auditions. I'm going to teach you for free. Wow. Not only that, but like there was one audition for the New Mexico Symphony. The first time they had the bass clarinet audition. For those of you who don't know, the now the New Mexico Symphony is gone. It's now the uh, New Mexico Philharmonic. Philharmonic. Yeah. Um, So it was before that and I was working my ass off for it. And, you know, my equipment, I didn't have the money to like really properly maintain my equipment. And he said, come to the repair shop. So I, I, took the train to the repair shop. He met me there and he had the repair guy go over all of my instruments. And then he just whips his card card out and just pays for everything right there. And after lessons, he would like take me out for lunch. He would take me out to dinner. And it's like, you know, the entire time I'm just like incredibly humbled by this experience. And it just made me want to work harder for him because it's like, he's giving his time. I'm not going to go in there and waste his time. But also, like, what kind of example that sets for potentially you as a teacher maybe going to be in that position someday, right? Exactly. Where somebody comes to you and is serious about it, and you can look back and say, this guy really took care of me and is a big reason why I'm successful. If something like that ever happens to me, paying it forward is the best way to pay it back. Yeah. Exactly what you're saying. I remember I had gotten this one-year position in the Orlando Philharmonic and I was getting ready to move away and I finished my year there and working with him and I told him like I said I don't know how I can ever repay you for everything and he said the same thing that he said to me all the time when I said that pay it forward because you're going to be presented with situations and opportunities where you can pay it forward yeah and what I love about that it's the same thing which is well, ideally speaking, the same thing with being kind or being yeah. nice to people, right? 
you don't you don't know if you're kind to someone here who they might be kind to because you were and then yeah. if basically everybody just keeps paying it forward like that mm-hmm. one small action over the course of time can potentially make a big difference in the culture of how people view things. So yeah. with more people in big orchestras or the people in big orchestras that do that, then you say, yeah, this guy's time is worth so much and mm-hmm. he's giving me so much of his time. If I do that for somebody else, then maybe they want to pay it forward, then they pay it forward. And all of a sudden you've potentially created this culture of people who just want to help other people. Exactly. And, and, and just be basically good stewards of of the instrument because we want everyone to succeed and mm-hmm. you know rising tides affect all boats and you know it's like all of my teachers I, I i marvel at how hard they worked to get to where they are but like paul's experience really resonated with me because he started at a state school the university of southern maine and he finished he was about finished with his degree there and he realized you know something's got to change so he went to depaul and started his bachelor's over again and got his master's in artist diploma and was hustling. He was working like an admin job at DePaul. And then he won a position in the president's own. And then he played there for uh, a tour. And then he won the uh, temporary sub position in the Philly Orchestra right after that. And, you know, that lasted for a year. And then he was first call sub with Philly freelancing for like six years in Philadelphia and then finally won the permanent job. And it's like, and it's, and it happened for him like a little bit later in life than most people um, who have the quote unquote traditional, you know, conservatory track. And, and I'm like, but he's there now, you know, yeah, and and just the tenacity and how hard he worked. It's like his story was like so inspiring to me. And it made me realize that I, I never have a doubt. And like, I, I listen to him play and he sounds gorgeous and amazing. And like, you know, and all of my teachers do. Um, what I think is so incredible about that, like what I glean from that is again, that he's there now. So it yes. doesn't matter how long it took. Mm-hmm. Now he's in the Philly orchestra and now he's living the dream, right? The dream that oh, yeah. everybody has, but he, if he didn't get it when he was 22 years old or whatever, yeah, you know, exactly. pick, pick an age, right? It doesn't matter that he's the one there now. And that, to me, that's encouraging for literally everybody because whether it happens when you're 21 or it happens when you're 51, if it happens mm-hmm. and you just persevered through that and then you're there, yeah. it doesn't matter, right? Then you're there. It doesn't matter anymore. I think that's that's some of the most encouraging things and like an encouraging, encouraging story that I can possibly think of is if you stay at it, like you said, the tenacity mm-hmm. to stay at it um, and, and then it happens for you. Then you can say it was totally worth it, you know, and even if you can't, hypothetically speaking, it doesn't work out for you. I imagine where you end up Mm -hmm. is probably pretty good, too. So to the point of what you're saying, you know, so I moved to Orlando and it's a one year position. And, you know, Orlando was like a really hard time for me because um, it was my first job in a quote unquote real like playing job. And I wasn't used to preparing that much music on a weekly basis. And so, and I had some missteps and, you know, I was just trying to figure my life out at that point in time. And the best thing that happened from, from Orlando is I met my wife there and that was probably the most amazing experience. Uh, The love of my life, Carrie Falwell. And we now have a beautiful son named Zachary. Shout out to both of them. Um, And, I learned so much there. And one of the biggest things that I learned is 
I did not win the permanent spot. It was won by my friend Patrick Graham, who now plays in the Jacksonville Symphony. And it was one of the best things that happened to me is not winning the permanent spot yeah, because I, can... I had tied so much of my value as a human being yeah. to being able to play clarinet. And when I failed at it, and I had had failures before, but I just had this blind, you know, like we're going to go forward no matter what. I had a lot of sorrow and there were a lot of tears shed. And I was just like, what is going on? And my wife said, I mean, sorry, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she said, you know what? You're allowed to feel sorry for yourself for the next 24, maybe 48 hours. But then after that, you got to dust yourself off and pick yourself up and just move forward. I love that. You know, you're a, it's okay. You could feel the way you feel. It's okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. But eventually you're going to have to pick yourself up and figure out how to move on. Yeah. And it was hard for me because I, I felt like I was so defined by what I was doing and having that and losing that opportunity, like, honestly, it was good. And there was another piece of advice that um, I think my teacher, Tim, gave me. After that audition, he said, you know, Calvin, the people who succeed in this business are the ones that have the stamina to continue, which made a lot of sense because I had so many friends that they took like five or six auditions and then they quit and they went and got like an accounting degree or something like that. Not that there's there's anything wrong with that, but I was just like, and it kind of shaped what I tell students now. If you can see yourself doing anything else, then do it. Like, this isn't for the faint of heart. Sure, definitely not. Like, you're going to go through great times and you're going to go through hard times, times that really suck. Um, But you have to be fully committed to it. And I realized that, you know what? I got to pick myself up. So a couple weeks later, went and made finals for another audition. And I just kept hustling. And, you know, we moved to Rochester, New York, uh, where my wife became the development director of the uh, Rochester City Ballet. And I did some freelancing in upstate New York and teaching and went on uh, tours with the Hollywood Concert Orchestra, went to China with them. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, I know. It was fun. It was kind of like hell in a handbasket. But uh, yeah, it's cool that you have that experience, though. And uh, I got to tour with uh, Shirley Jones. For those of you who don't know who Shirley Jones is. I'm uh, one of those people. Uh, she, uh, she, was the mom, <laughs> she was the mom in the Partridge family. Oh. Yeah. And um, was, in, there, was in South Pacific. No, she was amazing. Um, so I did stuff like that. And then, um, uh, started working at a summer festival called Blue Lake. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I know it, it, it's kind of like when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So well, that's probably, that could be like the subtitle. I feel like you've just at, at all turns just took what you have. You yeah. were, it's, it's just something I, I I'm learning to really respect and value in, in, Hearing these people, hearing people's stories, you know, mm-hmm. like Demandre is from Tuscaloosa. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, it's like a football town and he picks the euphonium, which is not like a typical instrument that has a career track. And this guy just made a career out of it. And now know? Tuscaloosa is, I mean, it's home to the football team, but now it's also home yeah. to one of the finest euphonium exactly. players in the world. Yeah, And he just, and it's the same thing with you, you know, at all turns, you were like, well, I don't live in New York. I live in you know, Murray, Kentucky, right? But 
that doesn't have to stop me from trying to to learn more. And just at every stage when you were exposed to a little bit more, mm-hmm. you took advantage of that. Oh, absolutely. And then you're exposed to a little bit more and you're like, okay, I'm going to grow to the point where I need to learn more. And then I'm going to keep growing. And at every – where you feel like maybe you topped out, you sought more opportunity to continue growing. And that's mm-hmm. essentially – I think in any discipline – Ever, that's how you have to approach it is you learn as much as you possibly can. And then when you feel like you've hit a ceiling, you go find somebody and you Absolutely. learn more and you learn more. And just that process of never wanting to stop learning ultimately is a big part of why I think people can be and are successful as well. Oh, absolutely. They're just not limited by thinking, I've got it figured out. I'm going to coast now. Mm -hmm. Just never coasting is where you end up having, um, I think, the most amount of success. And it sounds like you would fit right into that model. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, you know, going back to what I did, you know, sending emails to all sorts of places, I, I started to do that again. You know, I used Rochester as my base and I thought, you know, I can fly places or drive places. Basically I have clarinet and I will travel. So I got it in my head. I'm like, you know, there are a lot of cities out there that are like medium-sized cities that have an orchestra but the orchestra they're big enough where they have a full-time orchestra but the orchestra doesn't play for the opera or the ballet so i started sending and they use like freelance orchestras so i started sending emails to opera and ballet orchestras and i got some replies so living in rochester new york i would fly down and play with opera naples in naples florida and i play with opera tampa in tampa florida and uh I did some stuff with Sarasota Opera as well, and um, I was just like, you know, I was making it work. I was hustling. I was traveling. And then about at the end of like a year in Rochester, I had been going down to Florida enough in playing with like Opera Tampa and Opera Naples. I came in contact with some people who taught at the school, in the School of Music at the University of South Florida. And they were having some issues with the clarinet studio where they had a clarinet faculty member who was not doing enough recruiting and they needed to really boost the numbers. So they said, hey, would you be interested in applying for this position? And I thought, yeah, I'd totally be into it. And it was a um, halftime position. And um, and I talked it over with my fiance then. And um, so I applied and I got an interview and I went in, did the interview, really liked it. And then they offered me a job to teach um, as a instructor of music in the School of Music at the University of South Florida. And no sooner had I gotten that, but I got word that the Miami City Ballet needed a bass clarinetist. So I went and auditioned for that. And I got that. And, you know, kind of everything happened at once. And I ended up moving back to Florida. And my wife got a very good job uh, working at the Children's Museum. And we started to make our lives in Tampa. And so it was that way for a few years. And then I started um, playing as a regular member of the Sarasota Opera Orchestra for two seasons. Um, And that's a festival orchestra. They're in residence for like 10 to like 15 weeks in the wintertime. Great gig. Lots of amazing players that come from around the country to uh, play opera in a wonderful place. So I did that. And then I started subbing regularly with the Sarasota Orchestra. And when their bass clarinetist let the position go, I 
was lucky enough. I auditioned and, um, you know, went all the way through the process, all the rounds and won the permanent spot. So from, it's kind of amazing, just from hustling and making opportunity for myself led to like a snowball effect of things that started happening and then winning a job. And, you know, now we have this good life in Florida, but I will say it's not all rosy. There was some kind of professional tragedy there. So, um, no sooner had I gotten, I built the studio at the university of South Florida. I was playing in the orchestra. I also won a artist in residence position at the college of New Jersey, which is in Ewing, New Jersey, kind of in between Princeton and Philadelphia. So for three years, I would fly up every Monday to Philly and I would take the train to Ewing, New Jersey, and I would teach, had some amazing students there. But sometimes decisions are made for you and they may not at the time, they may not be the decision that you want um, and they can be very painful, but ultimately they are the right decision. And you realize that kind of later in life. So after three years, uh, the administration and I parted ways at the College of New Jersey. And that was because, I mean, I was flying up and they said, we want you to move here. And I'm like, well you know, I'm not making enough up here. Or, you know, I said, if you can offer my wife a job, then we could talk. Um, and basically they said, well, with your performing schedule, they said, we like that you're performing, but you're away from the college and we don't feel like the students are getting what they need. And we want someone here who's going to be here more on a regular basis. And I said, well, I can't do that. So then we parted ways and it was basically, I was given an ultimatum, but I'm like, it wasn't worth it. And but it's cool. You had built basically enough of a life where you could probably feel like, although I would like to do this opportunity, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. And then no sooner had that happened, but the department, uh, the College of the Arts and the School of Music was kind of going through some structuring issues. And at the time, there was a full-time associate professor of clarinet in the School of Music who had like a handful of students. And he'd been there since, you know, a long time. I don't know how long he's been there. but um, And I had built a studio of up to 18 students. I had graduate students and my students were going off and doing things and being successful, getting into big grad programs. Um Basically, it came down to finances, and the provost said that if there are duplicate positions in the College of the Arts, we're going to get rid of those positions. So basically, he was like, why do we have this person who's half-time teaching a full load whenever we have someone who is full-time who's not teaching a full load? So again, decisions that are made for you. Yeah, yeah. They moved all my students into the full-time professor's studio, and I was left kind of with nothing. Sure. So they offered me one class and it was teaching online rock music. So I'm like, okay. And again, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So I'm like, okay. You know, I, 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 I joke with my wife. I'm like, I, I'm kind of like Cher or Madonna or like Prince in that vein where, you know, every 10 years you got to reinvent yourself. And, um, so basically, I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. 
I can teach online classes. So I took an online certification course and I developed these courses and I taught some online courses at the College of New Jersey. And I started building my online class empire. So I just started emailing every single university and every single community college in the state of Florida. And How did the email start? <laughs> Hi, my name is Calvin Falwell. <laughs> you don't know you me. Don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> and that led to... Um, uh, being hired on faculty at Valencia Community College uh, in um, Orlando, which is where I teach three sections of music appreciation and jazz history, um, doing online stuff at the University of Tampa. And, you know, early on in my experience at USF, I had done some stuff with the Honors College. So I reached out to the dean of the Honors College. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, the College of New Jersey is a really beefy program in terms of terms of academics. So I had that experience of teaching courses there and I used that and I sent them my CV and I said, I would like to teach some music courses. And they said, yeah, great. You know, we would love to offer music courses in our humanities program for the honors college. Um, what would you like to teach? And it's like, okay, it's the honors college. I can't just say, Oh, I want to teach rock music history. So I started developing courses in uh, the history of electronic dance music, which is all encompassing a history of electronic music and how it ultimately became this dance music phenomenon, where that phenomenon started. Um, then I also have a course called the whitewashing of black music, which is a history of cultural appropriation, not only in like rock music and soul and rap, but we go all the way back to, um, classical music history and various influences. Um, and of course I'm teaching, I teach another course in race and politics and mu in rock music. And so I've developed these courses, which are now part of the core curriculum for humanities in the honors college. And so I'm teaching in the honors college academic courses and, um, still teaching at the university of Tampa and teaching at Valencia college with online courses and doing all of this research and kind of going to a more academic setting uh, was really freeing in a lot of ways because before I had to deal with 18 contact hours with students. And now I go in to my 8 a.m. classes and I'm like, I do my lecture and then I go to rehearsal. Yeah. And now I have more time for my family and sure. I have time to practice. Well, and it's cool too, because for a lot of us, you know, the job may define everything about us, but it's like, you've sort of built an empire around a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So like, obviously not one thing, you're not just a bass clarinet player anymore, right? That's the thing yeah. you were like, this is what I'm going to be in sixth grade. You decided I want to play the bass clarinet. But you've sort of, through the opportunities uh, and necessity of creating mm -hmm. your own opportunities, have built like this well-rounded career where you're, um, you've got your hands in a lot of different projects. But also, you've probably learned a significant amount from that and, and made you sort of a well-rounded yeah. person in general, not just like a just a playing musician. But um, yeah, you and do it's it all. like you know, having my hand in a bunch of different projects. There's another one that you know, another thing to add is. Um, I'm always, uh, for years, I was always looking for a, a better summer gig. And I think, you know, most musicians who play in an orchestra that's like not 52 weeks, we're always looking for a summer festival to play at. So um, for a few years, every August, I would start sending out emails about the next summer to various festivals. So I sent an email to this 
opera festival called Ashlon Opera. And I said, hey, do you have any openings? So I submitted a CD as a, for, you know, for second clarinet and bass clarinet. And no sooner had they received it and the um, artistic director had approved it, but I got an email saying, hey, we just lost our orchestra contractor. And realizing there's, I had an opportunity. So one of my assistantships in graduate school was to be the personnel manager for the contemporary ensemble at Duquesne. So I emailed them back immediately. And I was like, I was a personnel manager in college. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they were like, okay, well, where would you draw players from? And I said, well, we could do, we could do it one of two ways. We could do national auditions or we could put together a really awesome group from players that I know. And I list just, I listed off all the orchestras that my, my friends and colleagues play in. And then I got an interview and they liked what I had to offer. And they said, all right, we're going to hire you. Here's your budget. You're the personnel manager and orchestra contractor for the festival. And I've been there since 2012 and it's been awesome. The yeah, and that's, that's how I know you obviously. And just as a side note of how the music world is small, mm -hmm. um, I went to Tanglewood in 2010 uh, and one of the trumpet players there with me was, uh, for anyone listening, Tanglewood is like a music festival in the Berkshires. Um, a trumpet player named Mike Dabrinsky was in the trumpet section mm -hmm. with me. And um, I met him there. And then he won principal trumpet in the Sarasota Orchestra, where I which play. is there where Cal uh, Calvin plays. And then so Mike started playing with Ashlon, now Charlottesville mm -hmm. Opera. And then one year... Mike couldn't play the musical because yes. he had some other whatever other obligations. And then so I think I think maybe Mike recommended. Me. Yes, he recommended. Yeah. You. And so and then now I've played with this summer festival a couple of times and it's been it's a really cool. It's a really cool gig, as Calvin was talking about. It's up in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And just as a small world type thing, you oh, know, how like been 2010, I met Mike Dabrinsky sort of kept in touch here and there. And then all of a sudden now I'm receiving performing opportunities. Mm -hmm through that contact and just, you know, making friends with people and trying to just, you know, have you, like I said, have your reputation oh, yeah. follow you well instead oh, yeah. of following you poorly can lead to, you know, and who knows where any, any other opportunities could go. Exactly. From there. And to what you're saying, you know, like a friend of mine, Andy Carr, who's assistant principal horn at the Florida orchestra, he gave a class on like being a freelancer. And he said, there are three rules that every, you know, musician, you know, before you win a job, should follow and there are three rules that you should that should follow into your full-time career you know show up on time play well and be a nice person and i in exactly to what you're speaking about like when it comes especially to like the summer festival circuit and like chamber music and stuff so much of it is based on like okay is this person a nice person that's like usually first yeah right? it's like, are they going to show up when they say they're going to show up and do they play well right you know but it isn't i think almost in that order too yeah like People want you to play well, of course. Yeah. But if you play really well, but you don't show up on time because you think it doesn't matter, they will find somebody else exactly. who will show up on time. You're not so special that they can't find somebody, especially being as connected as you are, mm -hmm. playing in a great orchestra like you do. I'm sure you could, it wouldn't take you very long to branch out and find no. you know, a trumpet player that could show up on time, be a nice person, and also play well in, our, in that case. so And so... Doing all of that, so um, you know the orchestra sounds great. Like I'm always impressed every single year, and you know now when we do a national call for auditions, we get some really awesome players yeah. that come out of the woodwork to audition. And so I'm very proud of like 
academically, the work that I've done at the university, playing work that I've done in the orchestra, um, and you know, the work I've done as a personnel manager. Yeah, you're making it better every year, yeah. And add one more thing to it. Um, I've also commissioned a number of concertos for bass clarinet, because going back to like, I just want to be a rock star on bass clarinet. Um, so I released a CD in 2014 of three concertos that I had commissioned for uh, bass clarinet for one for bass clarinet and chamber ensemble, uh, one for bass clarinet and orchestra, and another one for bass clarinet and percussion orchestra, and received a lot of cri- you know great critical reviews. Um, and obvious and honestly is kind of selling pretty well and gets streams on Spotify, which is very humbling. Probably going to listen to it when I work out today. Oh, nice. (laughs) It's going to make, it's going to make you uh, lift more than 515. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so all of that, you know, it's, um, it's been kind of an amazing ride. Yeah, and, it sounds like it. And like, and you're just getting started too. You're oh, not and, even and that the, old. I know. And the, like, the final thing is going back to the academic courses that I'm teaching. You know, I thought I'm always thinking like the future, and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do after my my playing career is over? And it's like I'm a, I'm I really want to make sure that I, I retire from my playing career before people say I should retire. <laughs> Um, and I'm always thinking about like, what happens if I can't play? How do I maintain myself as a musician? Like if something were to happen to me physically. So I've been kicking around for the last 10 years, the idea of getting my doctorate. So I applied and, um, I'm going to Columbia university, um, part-time through their graduate school of education at teacher's college and getting a PhD in music. And I don't think I knew that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's difficult because i'm juggling playing in the orchestra each week being a family guy family man and then i'm teaching four to seven classes a semester a mix of face-to-face and a lot of those are online classes and then i'm also taking my own classes wow yeah and again not wanting to take student loans out i was lucky enough to be scholarshiped at columbia and um have come in contact with amazing faculty members through that department of music. And who knows where that's going to go, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be a long process because it's part time. But again, thinking down the road and um, yeah. And, you know, and from all of these experiences and coming in contact with people and playing for people, I've had some great opportunities of playing with great orchestras, you know, such as being here, you know, playing uh, with Alabama Symphony now a few times you know, going out to Fort Worth and playing out there and, you know, getting to go up and play in Philadelphia has been amazing. And especially this last time getting to sit next to my teacher and play the right of spring, which was, you know, a dream come true because, you know, he kind of joked, he said, you know, usually it would be, you know, he's not there. That's why they would hire a bass clarinetist. But, you know, it's like the right of spring is that one piece where I get to sit next to my teacher. That's very cool. That's very, very cool. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now, and yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate you sharing all that. I mean, it's nice to hear your story, but to get so much good information, and I definitely I feel like I learned a lot about you, which is a nice part of this process, <laughs> nice. too. Uh, so to wrap up here, I think the it's a question I want to try to ask everybody I interview mm-hmm. because I just am curious what everybody thinks about this, but in a climate that it seems like classical music might not be as relevant as it once mm-hmm. was, um, when orchestras may have been seemingly flourishing and now you hear of orchestras having financial troubles and, you know, going on strikes and lockouts and things like that. 
Um, what is, what is your, I would like you to make a case, I guess, for why you think classical music is relevant, whether it's to the individual, to a community or, you know, as a culture to Mm -hmm. us culturally, why why do you think classical music can be relevant? Well, I think it could be relevant because, you know, and I I just want to say this in terms of music, music touches everybody. Like everybody loves music, whether it's like listening to folk music, country music, death metal, or classical music. And I tell people that, you know, the same high that you can get from listening to your favorite rock or rap artist, you can get from listening to classical music because it's all the same notes. It's all the same timbres, just, you know, arranged in a different way. Um, And I think the appreciation of classical music is there but people don't know it's there. And I say that because, and I, I do this with like my music appreciation courses. Um, they'll say, oh, well, we don't like orchestral music. I'm like, oh, really? Do you like soundtracks? Do you like Harry Potter? And they're like, oh yeah, that music is great. We love Star Wars. Or it's like one person's like, oh, I like horror movies because the music is great. And I'm like, yeah, that's orchestral music. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's a symphony orchestra playing that music. And I also... F- think that the way the symphony orchestra you know is relevant in our daily lives is also changing and i think that we need to think about less about being in the concert hall and more out in the community which is really important and then this also gets into a deeper issue of just education as a whole and not not just like school band programs or school orchestra programs but just like educating kids on the arts and the humanities and not just about great works of literature and theater, but visual arts and music and having children from a very early age have an understanding and appreciation for what it is. Now, how are we going to do that in like, you know, rural areas or urban areas? I think one of the things that we need to do is bring it to the students and the people on their level. And realize that it's not this highfalutin, high class, you know, thing that you get up dressed in a fancy way and go to a concert hall. For some people, that's it. But I think what we can do is we can take pop music and pair it with classical music and go into schools and hook the kids with, you know, playing popular music on our classical instruments, because regardless of what the instrument is, it's still the same melody. It's still the same tune. Um, And then you get the audience, their ear, and then you're like, oh yeah, well, you like that? Well, listen to this piece of music. And, you know, I feel like nowadays contemporary music is kind of like a dirty word, you know, one of the seven dirty words in classical music. (laughs) Um, But I feel like, It can be easy and it can be relevant because there's a lot of great composers now that are using elements of pop music in their classical music. Like, for instance, like Mason Bates, like you play Mason Bates or Judd Greenstein. Yeah, we played Mothership by Mason Bates. It was actually I didn't know what to expect because it's with electronics. Yeah, pretty cool, actually. And it's like you play that for someone who's like, oh, I don't like classical music. And then they listen to it and they're like, yeah, this is this is pretty hip. Or like say someone likes like electronic dance music and you play like, you know, Terry Riley or Steve Reich for them. They're like, wow, this is really hip. I'm like, yeah, it's there's so many similarities. And I think it just boils down to education. And if you educate people and 
you know, meet them on their level and not be pretentious about it, then, I mean, the future is wide open. And just a real quick, you know, side note about this. There's an ensemble in Miami that's doing this. It's called the New Deco Ensemble. And they're a chamber orchestra that has, you know, classical instruments, but then they have a drum set player. They have an electric bass player. They have a, a DJ. They have a keyboard player who also has like drum machines. And they're taking classical music and rearranging it with hip hop and rock influences to kind of like make it something different. And, you know, what's amazing about their like um, audience membership. Yeah, I think the, the last time I talked to the member of their administration, I said, so what's your core audience? And they said their core audience is over 75% 40 and under. And so it's relevant. Yeah. And they have a huge uh, presence in the Miami-Dade school system where they go in and they play for kids. And the kids love it because they're like, wow, this is like the music of Outkast and like Dr. Dre that, that they're playing on classical instruments but then they'll play a piece of contemporary music or they'll play like some Mozart and interesting. It's all how you frame the conversation and you deliver it. So that's really good. That's really good thoughts, man. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that could pretty well wrap up the episode. Um, Yeah. I want to thank you again, Calvin, uh, for being here. Playing so well this week with the orchestra, but being willing to, uh, you know, give a little bit of your time. And um, if anybody wants to follow me, they can do so on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, you just follow me at That's Not Spit. Um, if they want to follow you, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Fallwell C, um, F A L W E L L C. And that's my Instagram. Or you can find me online at www calvinfallwell.com and then there's links on there to my buffet artist profile didario profile and then um if for any of you crazy cyclists out there um you can hit me up on strava (laughs) we didn't even talk about cycling that's crazy um um, calvin is more than an avid cyclist at this point it's a seemingly a passion in his life too but yeah maybe part two of the interview we'll touch that if you're interested hit me up uh, I guess I forgot to mention, too, that uh, I do have a website, that's not spit.com. You can find me there, too. Um, yeah, I also want to thank Brandon Yoakum, uh, who uh, masters these episodes. He does a really great job, so I want to make sure I always give him a shout-out. And uh, I think that pretty well wraps it up. Thanks again, Calvin, and I uh, hope everybody has a good day. Bye. Bye.